Hi, Unconventional Hustlers. This is Reiki. And this is ASG. We strive to introduce young people to the professional world through candid conversations with industry gurus. Today, we have Amit Garg with us. Amit began his career at Google as a product manager and then co-founded Health IQ, a health tech startup that is currently valued at $450 million in its Series D funding. Now, he is the co-founder and a managing partner at Tao Ventures, which is a $17 million early-stage venture capital fund. Tao Ventures invests in startups focusing on artificial intelligence applications in healthcare, enterprise, and automation, specifically cars, drones, and robots. In this episode, we dive into what it means to be a VC and what VCs look for when investing in a startup. So let's get it started. Great. Thank you so much for being here, Amit. Uh, why don't we start off by uh, telling everyone what your background is, where did you grow up, and where did you go to school? Sure. Uh, Ana-Sophia and Reiki, uh, thank you for having me here. Uh, it's a pleasure to see you again, Ana-Sophia. Um, and uh, to answer your question, uh, I'm speaking right now from Silicon Valley. Uh, I've been here for just over 20 years, so about half of my life, I guess I'm dating myself. And I am currently running Tau Ventures, which is a seed-focused fund. Uh, we started it about a year and a half ago. But uh, before all of this, I have worked at two other VC funds. I started a company. Uh, I have worked at a big corporate, uh, Google, and I've done an MBA. I've gone uh, for an undergrad and a master's. Um, and before all of that, I grew up in Brazil. So I have roots in Latin America um, and also in Asia because my family comes from India. So I subscribe to both those countries. Uh, born and raised in a small city on the coast of Brazil. I lived for a couple of years in northern India and then came back to that city and then did my high school in the capital of Brazil, which is where my parents are today. And from there, came here to the U.S. You said that you've lived in Silicon Valley for a while. And I also grew up in Silicon Valley. And how have you have you seen the show uh, Silicon Valley? I'm a big fan. I laughed so much. Uh, actually, uh, the very first episode I saw, I couldn't watch it anymore because it was too close to reality. <laughs> yes. uh, but then I continued watching it afterwards. Um, it's it's a parody, obviously. It's a it's a TV show. It's fiction, but there's elements of truth in it. Elements, elements of stories that you can see. Okay, there's a grain here that you you can see has actually happened or could possibly happen. So I know from your background that you are the product manager at Google. So I'm curious, what does it mean to be a product manager? So a product manager is a position that is. Uh, Fairly standard at this point in the tech industry, Google has it, Microsoft has it, Facebook has it, and so on. In its current modern sense, it is really, um, you are sort of the mini CEO, right? You are helping make sure that everybody around you is able to do what they need to do, right? You interface with engineering, interface with marketing, with legal, with business development, with sales, with all these different positions, and you are kind of like the spoken at the wheel. The difference with the CEO is that a CEO has formal authority over the people that are working with him or her versus a product manager. Rarely you have people reporting into you who are not also other product managers. So it's more authority through influence. 
it does come from a long history. Uh, there are product managers in other industries. They're just called different names. Like in CPG companies, consumer product goods, they're often called brand managers. Speaking of authority through influence, what is the skill set needed to become a product manager? It's hard to generalize because it depends on the type of company and the type of specific industry. So let me constrain your question a little bit. Let's focus on tech and let's focus on specifically on software, right? Um, so it's the companies that many of us think about, the ones that I described earlier, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and so on. Having a technical background is a plus. Uh, usually computer science, but not always. It could be mechanical engineering sometimes or uh, mathematics or physics. Um, not having the technical background doesn't mean you can't be a good product manager. It doesn't mean you have to prove yourself a little bit more perhaps within your organization and perhaps even to yourself. So I like to say that you need to be tech conversant. You need to have a technical appreciation. You need to be able to grasp those concepts to enough of a level that you can actually argue and you can actually help and you can actually have a point of view, right? If you are in a debate with an engineer and you don't know what they're talking about, well, your authority with influence is not gonna go very far, right? Um, like my boss, one of my bosses at Google um, was international relations, and he was a journalist before he came to the tech industry. He was still a great boss and a great manager for many people, but uh, the key for him is that he was always willing to learn, and he was conversant enough about tech in order to be able to manage technical people, right? Um, I think the other skill set for a product manager is to be able to see Kind of like what Wayne Gretzky used to say, he's a hockey player, not where the puck is, but where the puck is going, right? Uh, to use a sports analogy is to be able to see two, three, four, five steps ahead, or to use another analogy is to play four-dimension chess. It's, it's not just the three dimensions you see on the chessboard, but the fourth dimension of time, of how it's going to look eventually. A product manager is fundamentally thinking, what do I need tomorrow that I need to do today? what I need next week, what I need next month, what I do need next year, what I need next 10 years, right? Like the ultimate product manager in that way is, is a CEO who is setting the vision for the company for the next 10 years. Um, I think that is a very critical skill set that you learn by, 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 by having enough planning and enough vision. That, that is something that's both taught in school, but also especially outside of school, right? It's life which teaches you. And I think the third one is being able to coordinate and cooperate. Um, you're working with people at the end of the you day. You are ultimately who everybody is going to look at to help make a decision. You're not necessarily making the decision. You're usually the dumbest person in the room because everybody knows more about their particular area than you, but you have the ability to synthesize everything and bring people together to a framework to an agreement, and then line all the ducks in a row so that you can execute well. The ultimate product manager is somebody who can get one plus one to be 11. Thank you so much for clarifying that. It, I'm so glad to hear you saying all this because I'm an international relations major, but I'm very interested in tech and working in the tech space. So hearing all this actually helps me learn more about all uh, the possible avenues that I can go into. Fantastic. Uh, rooting for you, Ana Sofia. Rooting for you. Uh, we were also wondering, uh, what does it mean to be a VC and how can someone become a VC? 
There are many paths towards the top of the mountain. If you consider VC a particular mountaintop, uh, you could become a VC fresh out of college um, or even without college. I've met a handful of people um, in that situation. Typically, there are people who have access to capital. They either hustle a lot and are able to get people to believe in them and then invest or have access to money through family or friends. Um, but the more typical mold is that you... Um, join a VC fund at a junior level, an associate level, or uh, perhaps a analyst level. Uh, and, and the words associate and analyst get thrown out here. Uh, analyst is usually somebody who is just out of college and is helping analyze data. And associate is typically somebody with one or two years of experience who is helping with sourcing companies. There's also a senior associate title that is typically bestowed upon you typically after you have done business school, and then there's principal. Some companies have a vice president title in between, and then you become a partner, and then there's levels of seniority between partners. There's managing partner, which is the person who is usually ultimately responsible for the fund. Um, so as you climb this hierarchy, really, uh, you could join a VC fund at these different points in time and then grow with that particular fund or by going to a different fund. You can also take a fork in the road and create your own fund, which is what I did. I worked at two other VC funds, got enough experience with almost 20 years of work experience. I said, okay, I feel ready now to do my own, right? So I became managing partner of my own fund, um, which is really exciting. It's probably the, I would argue, the most exciting way to being a VC. It's also the most uh, uh, demanding way to being a VC. You have to work really, really hard. But then there's another way, which is you uh, are an entrepreneur and you are usually a very successful entrepreneur who gets invited to join a VC fund. Or sometimes you have been an operator and usually have 30 or 40 years of experience uh, or a significant amount of experience or some kind of very differentiated expertise that you can bring to bear. And a VC fund typically invites you to join. So I've laid out like four or five ways here, right? Either you join fresh out of college or very early in your career, or you, you grow in a VC fund, or you start your own, or you are an entrepreneur or an operator, right? Like all of these paths exist. What I'm seeing more and more is somebody who is an entrepreneur or an operator who then gets trained in VC and then starts or continues rising through their VC fund. That's my path. Uh, I'm starting to see that a little bit more, which is very encouraging because that means that it's 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 very different profiles now coming into venture capital. And I'm really curious because you mentioned analysts and associates in uh, venture capital, and I'm just wondering what's the difference between an analyst position at a VC from an analyst position, let's say, in investment banking. Well, it's in many ways modeled after investment banking or consulting or many of these organizations that I would call pyramidal or asymmetric, meaning that there's a very large pool of folks who are earlier in their career. And the further you rise, there's smaller and smaller groups of people to the point that like in consulting, I think one out of eight people who starts in consulting becomes a partner, right? VC has similar dynamics. It's... Uh, um, I like to joke that they're enlightened dictatorships, right? Uh, most VC funds are um, small groups of people at the very top with larger groups of people working with them. Uh, and that's true of many organizations, not exclusive to VC. That's the point I'm trying to make. Uh, the difference is in banking as an analyst, 
I, I've never been in investment banking, so I'm speaking as an outsider, but it's it's you're working with, you know, different types of investments, right? Typically, iBanking is growth stage. Uh, it's inherently designed towards lots of metrics, lots of data, lots of things to analyze, lots of spreadsheets, right? Um, versus in VC, even if you're doing growth stage, there's less data. There's you know, it's not public companies oftentimes. So you're working with more in terms of modeling, in terms of uh, validating assumptions. So I think that analysts in VC funds, there's an inherent, I wouldn't say bias, but I would say inherent advantage and you being a little bit more technical in understanding your sector. Obviously happens in, in banking also, but I think it's a little bit more perhaps in VC. Like in banking, if you are a financial wizard, it will carry you a long way. And in VC, if you are financially a wizard, obviously it's a plus, but you need to be financially competent, right? The requirements on the financial wizardry are perhaps a little bit lower. The, the, the balance in terms of your, your key strengths can be a little bit different. We were also wondering, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your firm's business uh, model and uh, investors as well? Sure. So... I'm a GP, a general partner, so that is a term in the industry for people who run the fund. My partner, Sanjay, who I've known now for over 10 years, he and I used to work together at our first VC fund, and we stayed in touch and decided, you know, at some point we should go into business. He's the other GP. We have our own investors, which are called LPs, limited partners. That is a standard term in the industry. The word limited refers to the fact that they have less focus on running the funds on also in terms of liability and also in terms of decision making right all of those things come together um, my fund specifically is a seed fund although i am uh, opportunistically looking into uh, other forms of investments um, so series a series b series c right we have a provision for that and we are able to in a near future be able to do more there we're we're you know, we have some things in the works that I can talk publicly in the near future that will allow us to do more at non-seed stage. The core goal is applied AI. We, we look for companies that have a 10x advantage, whether it is 10 times cheaper, 10 times faster, 10 times better, but some kind of 10x advantage. And I focus on health, computer vision for colon cancer, machine learning platform for drug discovery, repurposing of drugs to treat canine cancer, eventually human cancer, a platform that uses continuous glucose monitoring to help you lose weight, right? Like I focus on things that have a technological underpinning to it that can help make a huge difference in how we all live. Um, my partner focuses on enterprise. He has focused on a lot of cybersecurity and tooling and things that can make enterprise a lot more 10x efficient, 10x faster, 10x better. And then we do a little bit of automation. So cars, robots, etc. cetera. Uh, we have a uh, robot that makes smoothies, a robot that chops vegetables, peels potatoes. And they're very fun companies to diligence because sometimes you get to try the product yourself. Uh, we are a little bit less active in that field because it is a little bit more hardware intensive and we want to be software focused. Uh, we focus especially on companies that are going to raise the next round in nine to 18 months. And at the moment, we're looking to put in maybe 250 to 500 through our fund. We will double or triple that check size by syndicating with our own LPs. So that way we bring them along. We can't do that for all the companies, but we try as much as possible. And um, 
we are the thing that we pride the most is even if we are not the largest investor right now we're often the second largest we uh, help them as much as we can as much as the lead investor um, we help them with getting more customers we help them with getting more investors my job to be in some ways a coach to enable you the players to score the goals get the glory and and win the games right it's it, it, a great vc to entrepreneur partnership means amazing teams that can change the world um and bad partnerships are terrible. Um, so we also look for that. It's can we work very well with the entrepreneur? And we encourage entrepreneurs to do the homework on us also is to make sure that they believe that we can be the best partners for them. For sure. And this is really giving me kind of flashback to Silicon Valley, the show, and how the this relationship is portrayed in there. I think uh, definitely an advisor and coach is a great term for your role with startups. And I know you mentioned earlier that you're a general partner and you have a couple limited partners in your venture. So limited partners are kind of like the investors in the venture. And so how do you handle relationships with your investors? And like, what is that like? How do you gain their trust? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And um, I'm, I'm very glad you brought it because it allows me to put a plug here, which is uh, we're always looking to connect with potential investors, potential LPs now or in the future. So I leave it up to you and to any of the viewers. If you're ever interested and want to engage with us, shoot us a note. We obviously like to build long-term partnerships here and the relationship between an LP and a GP is not a one-off. Um, typically funds are 10 years and typically you raise multiple funds over in my case, a hopefully a lifetime. So uh, I'm looking to grow my LPs and grow with them for the remainder of my life. Hopefully this is the last job I will ever hold. And sometimes LPs are people who already know you. They have worked with you or sometimes they're friends with you or oftentimes they know of you. Um, so it makes it easier. But often, but if I look even at our LP base, half of the investors came from the first half, like people we had no idea who they were before. Um, it were introductions and second or third degree introductions. Um, so in that case, you have to obviously tell them who you are, why you're doing, what you're doing, how it's differentiated, how can you actually uh, win, um, get you know the return profile that you're promising. Well, not promising, but expecting. Um, and uh, how you do investor relations. I think that's a very good point. So at this point, I can show this is how we work with our existing investors. So if you were to come on board, this is what I would be able to do for you. I would be able to invite you to our annual events or other events. I send, quarter, I send newsletters, usually quarterly, um, sometimes monthly. Uh, I send financial reports. I jump on the phone whenever you want video conferencing, um, depending on when and where the LP is, we are able to meet in person. Obviously right now, because of the pandemic, it's a little tricky, um, but we like to, as much as possible, be very, very collaborative with our LPs because we look at them also, not just as a source of capital, but as a source of uh, wisdom for us. Uh, oftentimes the LPs know a lot about different domains that they can help us with sourcing companies, diligencing companies, advising of our companies, 
Uh, sometimes they know a lot about finance, financing and investments in general. So we have LPs who have been instrumental in, in helping us learn about how to be better investors in general. And then uh, we also offer as much as possible a co-investments, at least right now. So uh, we bring the LPs along with us. So all of these are different ways of working with LPs. And uh, we have more than two, by the way. Most of the times you have more than two. Uh, it's pretty rare for you to have two. You, you, you sometimes have in the dozens. Uh, and eventually when you raise multiple funds, you have even bigger numbers of LPs, right? Dozens or even hundreds uh, of limited partners. Um, so for us, it's very crucial to be collaborative. It's not just working well with other entrepreneurs, but with the LPs. And that is something that most people don't see, right? Most people see VCs talking to their entrepreneurs, but there's a whole another side that is usually invisible. Um, Almost half of my job is something that nobody else sees but me uh, and, and the other people I'm interacting with. That's a great point. Like, thank you so much for clarifying this because I honestly didn't really know much about what was going on or like what's going on in VC firms. So now I have a better idea. We were wondering, um, how has your past work experience helped you become a better investor? <laughs> how hasn't it? I guess that's the question, right? Uh, I started my career at Google. I uh, was a product manager there initially. And at that time, I had so much to learn. So I look back and I go like, wow, that was me. Um, obviously, at that time, it was a fire hose of knowledge and, and, and of, of just learning how to operate in, a, in, in an environment with a lot more people with a very fast growing business. I joined Google before it got public, by the way. And by the time I left, 98% of the people I think had joined after me. So it was just an incredible, incredible rocket ship. Um, and uh, the relationships I built, but also just the knowledge of working in a, in a fast-growing environment was incredible. Uh, and then I worked at two other VC funds. So that very directly is, is an apprenticeship, right? Like you learn to be a better VC by working with other VCs who are much further along in your career. I owe it a lot to my bosses, but also my peers and also people who were more junior to me in those VC funds. Uh, I think everybody has something to teach, and I learned from everyone, including the people who were much earlier in their careers than me. I brought along everybody I could, by the way, in this fund. I have entrepreneurs I've invested who are investors. I have old bosses who are advisors and lots and lots of folks that I've worked with in the past who are investors or advisors. So uh, I keep in close touch with many folks. And uh, I started a company myself. That's the third thing I wanted to highlight. And that is you know, putting fire to the metal uh, in terms of... Um, having the startup experience makes me a better investor. I would argue very much so because I focus on early stage and having done an early stage, I can now speak from my own experience of everything that can go right and everything that can go wrong. And it carries credibility and, and empathy. The company I created, by the way, is called Health IQ. I owe it a lot to my co-founders. They are the ones who are the true heroes who have taken the company far along. But I'll take some credit, obviously, for what I did uh, when I was there in the beginning. Uh, company is doing really well. Uh, this is public. It's worth 450 million. Uh, has raised about 140 million. Yeah, every every experience adds to it, and especially being in this startup environment, which is Silicon Valley for 20 years, and Stanford is really startup U, startup university. Uh, that's what they should be called. Uh, is also incredibly helpful. But I also went to business school at Harvard, and uh, that that gave me a very different perspective on how to. Um, work with very different mindsets and also to learn things in different ways, right? The business school is basically a, a, a course in everything 
that could go wrong and that could go right. And for you to study those case studies and, and have this wealth of knowledge in your head that you can then apply eventually when you see a situation, right? So I, I went beyond your question. I, I described all my experiences, my formative experiences in my adult life. Uh, everything, everything contributes to where I am today. Definitely sounded like everything really did come together. And it's amazing to hear about your own startup experience and how that has helped you becoming a better venture. And now kind of changing the topic a little bit, because of COVID, we know that everything has moved to more of a virtual setting. So I'm curious, what is your biggest biggest concern when it comes to investing remotely and not being able to meet founders in person? I'm totally fine with it. I, I did fully virtual investments way before the pandemic. I invested in a company called Nutonomy 2015 for a couple of re- specific reasons. But really, I, I did that investment fully virtually. And um, I did the Series A afterwards, too. And then the company got sold two years later for $450 million. So that was a $450 million exit in two years. And the founders did amazing. And they deserve the full credit. But I'll take some, too, that... I spotted an opportunity and and I believed in it, even though I hadn't met them. And I feel perfectly fine. We started this fund without having an office um, and we still don't have an office and we probably won't have an office until absolutely needed. So uh, we did it because we didn't think we needed one and uh, obviously saves on rent. Um, So I've done a number of investments. Half of the investments last year were people we had no idea who they were before and that we still haven't met in person. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, We want to shift the conversation a little bit to the startups that you have invested. So what are some of the things that you look for when you are investing in a startup? So at the seed stage, I'm looking especially for the fact that they're starting to get commercial traction, right? I'm looking for whether they can get to product market fit in nine to 18 months, call it a series A, right? So we are not investing in science projects. We get super excited about them, but we're not investing in them. We are investing in things that have a pipeline um, or ideally very close to a pipeline. If you have pilots, even better. If you have paid pilots, even better. Um, But you have insights here that you're commercializing. Um, So traction, right? Number two, not necessarily in that order, is technology. Are you building something here that's sustainable do you have data sets that are proprietary? Are you simulating data? Are you going in a direction here that you will have a tech moat? That is important to us for our investment thesis. And then number three, and if you notice, all the terms I used started with the letter T. That is my own creation, uh, is team. And that is the single most important factor always is the relative weight you give to it changes perhaps given the stage and the focus of the company, but at all stages this is the single most important is who are these people? How did they meet? How do they work together? Who are they missing? What are the gaps? How well would they work with us? Right? Like what is their vision? I like to say that an A team with a B idea is always better than a B team with an A idea because the A team will figure it out and will pivot and will execute well versus the b team will always be limited by their skill sets so we invest in a teams we're okay if your idea is going to evolve that is what a seed stage is but we need to see that this is truly the best team for us to partner with yeah and i think this goes back to investing in people and you know having more of a focus on people than the business in a way. So going off of these characteristics, what do you think are the most important aspects that a startup should think about before contacting a VC? Well, I think it goes both ways, right? Um, 
I'm investing in people and they are investing in me by partnering with me, right? So my limited partners took a belief in me and speaks volumes about them. And they took a belief in Sanjay and I and Tao Ventures and so on. And same for our entrepreneurs. We encourage them to do their homework. So take even five minutes to look through our website and look at our portfolio, look at our investment thesis. If it doesn't strike potential fit, then we may not be a good fit for you, right? Like if you're building something that is out, let me make up an example here. Let's say you're building a gaming company. We just don't invest in gaming. It's a great vertical to be in for other investors. And if you're reaching out to us for advice, maybe we'll be able to give you some time and attention, but don't reach out to us for an investment. We're just simply not the right fits for you. Um, so I encourage everybody to at least spend five minutes. Like there's so much information online now, right? Crunchbase, LinkedIn, websites. Um, if you want to go a step beyond that before having a conversation, then um, do some diligence, right? Ask people who have been invested by us or who have worked with us, how is it working with us, right? There's, uh, especially if you're getting deeper and deeper in diligence, we encourage people to actually ask those questions. We want them to ask those questions. Um, and then uh, how you reach out is really important um, because if we don't know you, we're being bombarded by emails and messages. I get 2,000 deals a year. We cannot, unfortunately, give due time and attention to all of them. Uh, we take about 10% of those as meetings. Uh, rest assured, if you send us something, we will look through it. But very unfortunately, we cannot give time and attention deservedly to everyone. Uh, we have to give it to those that make more sense for us. So. If you are a complete unknown entity, make sure that there is something in your pitch that will really resonate and or send it to somebody we already have a deep relationship with, right? It, it helps us qualify a little bit better. If it comes from another investor we really respect or from another entrepreneur that we really respect, maybe we invested in them, maybe we know of them, maybe we've worked with them in the past, it carries some weight. I'm not saying this is just about social capital because it's not, but social capital does matter because it helps you distinguish signal from noise. Uh, ultimately, ultimately it's about the pitch, but the signal to noise ratio is way higher when it comes from a warm introduction. You know, it's, it's maybe 10 to 15% when it is from a warm intro and it's maybe one to 5% when it's from a cold email. Um, Many VCs won't answer a cold email, and we do, but it's rare. That is one of the most important things, just to do research in order to get to know the company and also see if it's a good fit, like you mentioned. We were also wondering, what are some characteristics that you find important in a startup founders, and also what are some characteristics of a founder that contribute to their success? There's no single shape or form of a founder. They come in all kinds of backgrounds. Some are fresh out of college, sometimes not even college. Um, I've, I don't know if I've ever invested in anybody who hasn't gone through college, though. Sometimes they have a lot of work experience. Sometimes they don't have any work experience. Sometimes they are in further stage of life. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes uh, they are in Silicon Valley. Sometimes they're outside. Like, there's no single pattern. What is true is often a founder has a disproportionate belief in their idea. Otherwise, they shouldn't be doing it uh, because if founders are people who build a parachute by falling off a cliff, right? They, they believe they can build that parachute. Um, they believe they can inspire others to join them. They believe they can make it work despite the odds being against them. So it's a very fine line between overconfidence and um, a conviction, right? So 
we look for people who have confidence and humility. It's level five leadership, uh, if you want to use the term from uh, a, a different framework out there. Uh, it's people who can believe they can do themselves and with a team and no matter what, but also know that they don't know enough and that they should listen to other people. They have the humility to realize what they don't know, but the conviction to realize that they will be able to do it. Um, so we look for that paradoxical mindset. It's really a paradoxical mindset is being able to hold two contradictory ideas in your head that this will work because I will make it work, but this has a very high shot of not working and I don't know what I don't know, right? Um, and then in terms of hard skills, uh, if you are a technical founder, obviously we are looking for what you can build. If you're a non-technical founder, then we are looking for what you can aggregate in terms of business and in terms of building the team, fundraising and so on. I call it hackers and hustlers, right? Typically teams of, at the seed stage are two founders. One is a hacker, the other is a hustler. Sometimes you see two technical founders. Sometimes you see two business founders. That's fine. It depends on the type of business. But two similar skill sets in a founding team are usually a yellow flag, not a red flag, but a yellow flag. So we like to understand how they will complement themselves, how they won't actually step on each other's toes, how will they find other skill sets to bring on into their company. Um, and then finally, uh, we want to see how they will work with us. I, I've alluded this in our conversation earlier. Uh, you could have two fantastic founders who won't listen to us, who won't pay any attention to our advice. Then it's a passive investment. And yes, there are investors that will do things like that. That is not us. We believe in being active. We believe in being partners. We're totally okay if you listen to us and decide not to do it. But we want to make sure that there's constructive dialogues that we can have, right? Um, that's why you're signing up with us. We we want to help. We want to be in it with you. We want to get our sleeves, roll up our sleeves and get them dirty. That's what a seed investor typically is. Um, it's very different from being growth investors. At growth investors, you're looking at metrics and you're helping companies perhaps in, in terms of actually getting an exit, it's not about building the company as much as about growing the company. I'm at the stage where I'm helping build companies. And for our last questions, we were wondering what, ad what advice will you give to young people that are still trying to figure out his or her career path? That's a very big question. A lot of folks have written books about this and spoken volumes about it. And uh, I do encourage anybody asking that question to look up the wisdom of many others. But uh, I, I guess what I can share is something I learned in my own career, and I'm learning a lot, and I hope to continue learning for the rest of my life. But what has worked well for me is, is choosing people to work with. Um, obviously, I've paid attention to the industry, to the specific company, to the title, to the role, to the salary, to the equity. All of those things are super important. But the number one thing that has been the most important is who are the people I'm working with? Who are my colleagues? Those are the people I will see day in, day out. Um, who is the boss? And is this a boss who could be a mentor to me, who could help me grow further? Um, is this somebody I could see myself becoming into? Um, whether this was at Google or at the VC funds I worked at or the companies I started and currently with Tau Ventures, right? I have a partner in crime and uh, this is somebody I, I worked with very closely and we have known each other for 10 years, right? Like I learned so much from working with him also. Um, and, and I think choosing who you work with is 
the single best advice that has worked well for me and that I think would work for somebody else uh, is, you know, we, we're going to be working, most of us, for probably around 40, 50 years of our life. Uh, we may be spending more time with our coworkers than even with our family, right? So choose the people you want to work with very carefully or as carefully as you can. <laughs> for sure, that is great advice. So that's all the time that we have for today. Thank you, Amit. We really enjoy learning more about venture capital and investing in startup. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast and sharing your insights. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unconventional Hustlers. Connect with us on Instagram at unconventional.hustlers, on Twitter at uh underscore podcast, or on LinkedIn at Unconventional Hustlers. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. See you soon. <laughs>